Luke chapter 2, verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole empire should be registered. This first registration took place while Quirinius was governor, was governing Syria. So everyone went to be registered, each to his own town. Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family line of David, to be registered along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was pregnant. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. Then she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him tightly in a cloth and laid him in a manger, because there was no guest room available for them. In the same region, shepherds were staying out in the fields and keeping watch at night over their flock. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Don't, don't be afraid. For look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today, in the city of David, a Savior was born for you, who is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped tightly in cloth and laying in a manger. Suddenly there was a multitude of heavenly hosts with, with the angel praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and peace on earth to people he favors. Then the angels left them and returned to heaven. The shepherds said to one another, Let's go straight to Bethlehem and see what has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. They hurried off and found both Mary and Joseph, and the baby who was laying in the manger, who was lying in the manger. After seeing them, they reported the message they were told about this that they were told about this child and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them but mary was treasuring up all these things in her heart and meditating on them sometimes christmas gifts are real surprising are real surprises maybe you've had a similar experience this kid this kid had in this story he says when i was a kid i wanted a basketball so bad I could scream. I dropped all kinds of hints, made false phone calls to my mother in another voice telling her that her son ought to have a basketball. I found the cheapest prices. I dropped, I dropped those on the breakfast table. You know, all those, all those things. And finally there appeared under the Christmas tree a box. Looked just the size of a basketball. I could just feel myself making shots with it. Christmas Day came. I tore into that thing, and it was a world globe. Have you ever tried to dribble a world globe? I mean, you can't even inflate the dumb thing. Unbelievable surprise. Didn't look at all like I expected. You see, in a sense, the world was waiting to get a basketball but instead received something that didn't look like what they expected. Rather than presenting Jesus to the world in fanfare, surrounded by wealth and royalty, God presented his own son, surrounded by animals and a few shepherds. This story we just read from Luke 
is a story of God's greatest gift to mankind. Yet, it was a gift that no one but a few expected. And that gift was none other than his only begotten son, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ. In these first three verses of this gospel, it says, in, uh, in John's gospel, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. Now think about that for a minute. He who, he who was with God in the, before the world even was created was now this tiny little baby wrapped in cloth and laying in a manger. Here's how Augustine put it. He was created of a mother whom he created. He was carried by hands that he formed. He cried in a manger in wordless, wordless infancy. He, the word, without whom all human eloquence is mute. What I personally find mesmerizing was that this is how God chose to present his greatest gift to humanity. When I look at everything he created, I see the beauty in it. And it blows me away knowing that in God's mind, an infant laying in a manger and wrapped in rags was his idea of simple yet beautifully, a uh, beautifully gift, a uh, wrapped gift to us. For example, every time I've seen my wife wrap, wrap presents, I can't help but to admire how methodical and patiently she does it. She chooses the right paper, wraps it carefully, and picks the right ribbon to match it. Me, I, I can't do that. I'm not as patient or as creative as she is. If it were up to me, anything, anything I gift would be simple, small, square, wrapped in newspaper, and just to post it on it with your name on it. That's, how, that's just me. That's how I would do it. Well, when I read about how Jesus was born, I see a perfect combination of both beauty and simplicity. And only God could have planned it that way. J.I. Packer said this, the Almighty appeared on earth as, help, as a helpless human baby, needing to be fed and changed and taught how to talk like any other child. The more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as this truth of the incarnation. Now let me ask you, what do you think would have happened if God had chosen to withhold his son from us and Jesus had not been born? Well, I can stand here and give you a hundred things that could have happened, but just for the sake of time, I'll only narrow it down to five things that would have occurred. First of all, we'd still be waiting on a savior. Secondly, the Old Testament prophets would have been proven wrong. Thirdly, we wouldn't know what God is like. Fourthly, 
we wouldn't have an example to follow. And fifthly, we'd still be dead in our sins. Now, keep these five things in mind because I'm going to be referring to them in a little bit. If you just consider these five things I mentioned, what do you think the state of humanity would be without the birth of Jesus? Do you think the world would be better off? Yes, I know many atrocities have been committed in the, in the name of religion. Yes, I know that some people believe we would be better off if there was no religion or God. At least John Lennon thought so. He and many others believe we would all be better off just trying to be good people, trying to do good things. They believe we humans can be selfless, so selfless that would be, we would be willing to give our lives for the betterment of humanity. It all sounds good. It all sounds like a utopian society. But the truth is, I don't see the world getting any better. When I look around, what I see is a world slowly falling apart. It seems like every week there are news reports of an active shooter or a violent protest somewhere in America. Opioid addiction is wrecking havoc on our youth and families are being destroyed because of pride and selfishness. This only goes to show that instinctually humans are sinful. And unless sin is utterly removed from mankind, any talk of, human, of a human utopian society is all fantasy. As it says in Romans 3.10, there is no one who does what is good, not even one. And in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall, in sh and fall short of the glory of God. But thanks be to God that Jesus was in fact born. And as a result, there's now hope for humanity. Quoting J.I. Packer again, he said, the Christmas message is that there's hope for a ruined humanity. Hope of pardon, hope of peace with God, hope of glory because at the Father's will, Jesus became poor and was born in a stable so that 30 years later, he might hang on a cross. Now earlier, I, as I said, I mentioned five things that would have happened if Jesus hadn't been born. And I wanna tell you five things that did happen because he was born. First of all, we no longer have to look or wait for a savior because Jesus is our savior. In Isaiah 9, 6, it says, for a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. False prophets and so-called saviors of mankind have come and gone. But the, the, the thing they all shared in common 
was that they all died. Yet, only one stood the test of time and is still alive because he defeated death when he rose from the dead. Spurgeon wrote, infinite and infant, in infinite and an infant, eternal and yet born of a woman, almighty and yet hanging on a woman's breast, supporting a universe and yet needing to be carried in his mother's arms, king of angels and yet the reputed son of Joseph, heir of all things and yet the carpenter's despised son. Now I'll elaborate a little bit more on this in a bit. But now let me move on to uh, the next one. Secondly, we're not able to read and trust the words spoken about Jesus in the Old Testament. Some Bible scholars suggest that there are, there are more than 300 prophetic scriptures completed in the life of Jesus. Circumstances such as birthplace, lineage, and method of execution were beyond his control and could not have been accidentally or deliberately fulfilled. In the book, Science Speaks, Peter Stoner and Robert Newman discuss the statistical improbability of one man, whether accidentally or deliberately, fulfilling just eight of the prophecies Jesus fulfilled. The chance of this happening, they say, is one in the 10th, 17th power. Stoner gives an illustration that helps visualize the magnitude of such odds. Now, if you're a math person, you're a math geek, this may be fascinating for you. Suppose we take 10 to the 17th power silver dollars and lay them on the face of Texas. They will cover all the state of Texas two feet deep. Now mark one of those silver dollars and stir the whole mass thoroughly all over the state. Blindfold a man and tell him that he can travel as far as he wishes, but that he must pick up one silver dollar that says that, and say that this is the right one. What chance would he have getting the right one? Just the same chance that the prophets would have had writing these eight prophecies and having them all come true in any one man from their day to the present time, providing they wrote using their own wisdom. The mathematical improbability of 300 or 44 or even just eight fulfilled prophecies of Jesus stands as evidence to his messiahship. Thirdly, we're now able to know what God is like when we read all about what Jesus did and said in the New Testament. Let me explain. When I began this message, I referenced John chapter 1, verses 1 and 3. And in those two verses, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Well, if you read just a little bit further from there, in verse 14, you'll run into another amazing verse that says, the word became flesh and dwelt 
among us. Later, Paul also wrote in Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, For the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ. So what these verses tell us is that the, second, is that the eternal second person of the Trinity took upon himself a human nature similar to ours. Yet, he was distinct from us in that he still maintained his divine nature. In other words, Jesus was 100% man and also 100% God. R.C. Sproul described Jesus' incarnation like this. When Jesus came to this earth, he lay aside his divine attributes of omniscience, omnipotence, and all the rest. He doesn't communicate them to the human side. He doesn't deify the human nature. But in the mystery of the union between divine and the human nature of Jesus, the human nature is truly human. It's not omniscient. It's not omnipotent. It's none of those things. But at the same time, the divine nature remains fully and completely divine. Sprague goes on to say, but in any case, what is emptied is glory, privilege, exaltation. Jesus' Jesus's incarnation makes himself, uh, I'm sorry, Jesus in the incarnation makes himself of no reputation. He allows his own divine um, exalted standing to be subjected to human hostility and human criticism and denial. So if you want to know what God is like, all you have to do is look to Jesus. He said this in John 14, 7 and 9. If you know me, you will know my Father. The one who has seen me has seen the Father. Fourthly, because Jesus was born, we now have a perfect example to follow. You can literally take any situation, any circumstance in life, and see how Jesus exemplified it in his own life. He knew what it was like to be hungry and thirsty, to be in need and to have plenty. He knew sadness and happiness, anger and joy. He knew what it was like to be accepted and to be rejected, loved and hated. He showed us how to live and how to die. More importantly though, in Christ, we have a perfect example of how to love. In John 13, 34, Jesus said, just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. Let me read to you a passage you're probably familiar with that exactly personifies the love Jesus had and wanted us to have. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 8, it says, Love is patient, love is kind. Love does not envy, is not boastful, is not arrogant, is not rude, is not self-seeking, is not irritable. 
and does not keep record of wrongs. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Now as I read that again, you can just substitute the name of Jesus for the word love. And it's just, I, I recommend you do that on your own, but again, you get a perfect example of how Jesus was. And when you look to Jesus, that's how God is as well. Fifthly and finally, because of that little baby, because that little baby was born, we're given a, a savior to rescue us from sin and death. Prior to the birth of Christ, an angel told Joseph in a dream, she will give birth to a son and you are to name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And that's in Matthew 121. Did you get that? The angel informed Joseph of a fact, told him what to do with that fact, and then explained the reason why. He will save his people from their sin. Who are his people? They're Christian believers who the Father gave to Jesus to do his will and to do his will. When it says that he will save them from their sins, the meaning is twofold. First, he saves or delivers them from the penalty of their sins, which is eternal punishment in hell. This happens instantaneously. At the moment a sinner places their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and is born again. Second, he saves them from the power of sin in their daily lives. This happens gradually and progressively as the believer learns to walk in dependence on the Holy Spirit. Let me share another familiar yet important verse that explains why the Father sent his Son. It says in John 3, 16 and 17, for God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only Son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. So you see, God sent his son to free us from the bondage of sin, from the bondage of sin and death, to forgive us of our sins and give us eternal life. So I hope that, abund that it's abundantly clear how significant the birth of Jesus Christ is. It should make you want to shout, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. A famous musician said this, the idea that there's a force of love and logic behind the universe is overwhelming to start with, if you believe it. Actually, maybe even far-fetched far to start with. 
but the idea that, that, that the same love and logic would choose to describe itself as a baby born in, a straw, in straw and poverty is genius and brings me to my knees, literally. To me, as a poet, I'm just in awe of that. It makes some sort of poetic sense. It's the thing that makes me a believer, though it didn't dawn on me for many years. Well, now that God has presented his gift, he's waiting to see who will accept it. My question to you is, have you received it? An American Express survey about Christmas gifts found that the fruitcake was chosen most often, 31%, from a list of worst holiday gifts. It even finished ahead of no gift at all. When asked how to dispose of a bad, of a bad gift, 30% would hide it in the closet. Do we have any fruitcakes in the closet? Okay, just want to make sure. We would hide it in the closet. 21% would return it, and 19% would give it away. This suggests that the Christmas fruitcake might get recycled as a gift for the host of the New Year party, of the New Year's party. This survey proves that everyone, not everyone will like or accept a gift they've received. And this next passage proves it. In John chapter 1, verses 10 through 13, it says, He, Jesus, was in the world, and the world was created through him, and yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were, who were born not of natural descent or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. It's simply astonishing to me. After reading all that God had done for the nation of Israel, they refused to receive, to receive God's precious gift of his son as their Messiah. But the Bible has also taught me that a people's unwanted gift is another's, is another's joy and treasure. So again, let me ask you, what will you do with the gift God has given you? Will you thank him, toss it to the side, and choose the gifts of the world? Choose the gifts that the world has to offer? If so, let me tell you, you'll never find true joy and satisfaction from those gifts that come from the world. Eventually, over time, you'll get bored and move on to the next one, and then to the next one, and then to the next one. King Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes 1.14, I have seen all things that are done under the sun. I have found everything to be futile a pursuit in the wind. I read a story that said, one year when Christmas Day fell on a Sunday, a farmer decided to go to church 
Like some people, he thought he was fulfilling his religious duties or obligation by going to church twice a year at Christmas and at Easter. The sermon that day was pre the sermon that was preached that day was Isaiah chapter 1 verse 3. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's feeding trough. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Isaiah is saying here that a man is dumber than the animals. After church, the farmer returned home and stood among his cows. One of them began to lick his hand, a practical demonstration of the sermon he had just heard. Strong man though he was, the farmer began to weep as he thought, God did so much for me, and yet I never thanked him. My cow is far more grateful than I am. What do I ever give her other than grass and water? See, this man finally got it. He realized the personal significance of Jesus' birth and how ungrateful he was for, uh, that God had given it to him. Now, on the other hand, have you accepted the gift of his son with joy and thankfulness? If you haven't, don't let another Christmas go by without doing so. The Bible says in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 13, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. One believes with the heart, resulting in righteousness, and one confesses with the mouth, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, everyone who believes on him will not be put to shame, since there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, because the same Lord of, of all richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Will you call on the name of the Lord this Christmas? Eve, Eve. If you're watching, listening, if you're here visiting us and you haven't done so and you're ready to do that, before I move on to our last section, let me lead you in a prayer to accept Christ into your heart. Do it today and you'll see that your life will never, ever be the same. So if that's you, again, watching, listening, just wherever you're at, close your eyes, bow your heads, pray this with all sincerity. Lord God, forgive me of my sins. I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sins. I confess he is Lord. So now I place my sins upon him and believe that you have washed, you're washing me clean.
I accept him as my Lord and Savior. Empty me of all the junk and just fill me with your Holy Spirit. Thank you again for sending Jesus to die for me. I accept and receive your forgiveness. Now help me to walk according to your ways all the days of my life. In Jesus' name, amen. If you've prayed that, and now that you've received the gift, what's the last thing you do when you receive a gift? The only thing left to do is to unwrap the gift. Unwrap the gift, make him yours and rejoice. Do you remember as a kid wrapping that one special gift that mom or dad told you to open up last. What did you do? And how did you feel when you opened it? I'm pretty sure that when you saw it, you were excited, you were, and you, you totally blew your mind away. And all you wanted to do was play with it all day. Maybe it was a doll, maybe it was a bike, maybe it was a, it was a basketball. But you were just excited about it. Well, this story goes, well, well, this is how God wants you to feel about his gift to you. His gift of his son. Regardless if you're a new or older believer. It says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 8 through 9. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though not seeing him now, you believe in him and you rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy because you're receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And also in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For you were saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God not from works, so that no one can boast. What good is a gift if you don't unwrap it and make it yours? God sent his son for you to love and cherish so that you may have joy and hope every single day of your life. And the best way to do that is by trusting in him, reading and studying his word, spending time with him in prayer and in fellowship with other believers. I'll end with a quote from John R. Rice. You can never truly enjoy Christmas until you can look up to the Father's face and tell him you received his Christmas gift. Church, there's no greater gift than the one God gave us inside a manger over 2,000 years ago. Let's close with the word of prayer. Again, Lord, we're so thankful that you've given us the precious gift of your son, Jesus Christ.
without him, we're nothing. But now, because of Christ, because we've accepted him, because we believe in him, you've made us your own. We're your children. We're your people. And you love us unconditionally. Even though we blow it and we mess up, Lord, you're still there to forgive us. You're still there to hold us up. And one day, we will be with you for all eternity. And again, that wouldn't have happened if you wouldn't have sent, if you wouldn't have sent your son, Jesus Christ. If that baby in that manger would not, wouldn't have been born. Again, we are eternally thank thankful. So as we go about the rest of these few days celebrating, Lord, being with family, cooking dinners, um, passing out gifts, receiving gifts, may we never forget, may we always remember, keep in mind what this is all about, Lord, what this time is all about. It's a celebration, Lord. Remembrance of the birth of your son. Thank you for your gift. A gift like no other. Lord, bless this next time that we have together. Bless everyone's, the rest of everyone's weekend their Christmas Eve, their Christmas Day. Keep them safe. In Jesus' name, amen.